0: Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, your shorthand guide to the week's TV news stories brought to you by the Broadcast Journalist Squad and many others. I'm senior reporter Max Goldbart and Insight Editor Jesse Whittock joins me this week to chow down on some PSV as grandees have their say and a ten-strong panel is assembled to oversee the future of this country's wavering public service broadcasting sector. And later, I'm delighted to welcome Emmy-nominated director Jenny Ash, who takes us behind the scenes of her upcoming Channel 5 documentary on the Nuremberg Trials. All that, plus a little bit of what we've been watching on this week's Broadcast News Wrap. So delighted to welcome once again our Broadcast Insight editor Jesse Whittock. Jesse, how are things?
1: Uh, yeah, all right, Max. Um, there's just been a massive downpour outside my house. Um, hopefully that's not a your precursor for the day but uh, no broadly i'm all right apart from the weather
0: christ yeah hopefully uh, not a metaphor for for things to come and i i welcome you on our 25th broadcast news wrap did you ever think when the two of us were sat recording the first broadcast news wrap that we would ever get here
1: we, we were like intrepid reporters, uh, in no, intrepid explorers, in fact, or intrepid reporters. I suppose. Um, <laughs> no. And uh, yeah, we, we went out to the big wide world of, of podding. And here we are at a quarter century. What, a, what an achievement, <laughs> Max. We should have a little, little glass of wine this evening.
0: 25, 25 pods. Well, I'm excited. And as, as literally as we've been speaking, the
1: downpour has reached Dalston. So that's, that's interesting. Oh, well, there you go. And it's actually left, it's left Wickenham. So it's obviously moved across London. shifting uh,
0: shifting across the downpour is celebrating our our 25th podcast (laughs) um but we're here more seriously we're here to talk about uh psbs it's felt like a almost formative week for the future of public service broadcasting yet another review this time from from the government oliver dowden's dcms has been kick-started so that works alongside a review by ofcom and a review by the dcms committees that's three reviews we've also had the formation of a 10 strong panel Uh, including super indie bosses, grandees, and the odd BBC sceptic thrown in there for good measure. Elsewhere, Mark Thompson and Michael Grade both used their outside-the-box appearances, uh, the Freeview event that took place earlier this week, to talk tough on the future of this country's public service broadcasting sector. There was particularly bad news for Channel 4, which was given five and ten years respectively to survive by these two former chief executives of the channel, Unless it does something drastic, Jesse, what did what did you make of all this? Is first of all, and I, I know we're going to come on and to talk about the panel.
1: I suppose the most kind of broad thing you can say about it is it's uh, if you work at a public service broadcaster in a management position at the moment, uh, you must feel under huge scrutiny. Uh, like you say, Max, three separate um, you know probes into into the future of of what the sector will look like uh, is going to mean you know, a lot of meetings, a lot of, uh, um, you know, hours spent debating the minutiae of what it means to be a public broadcaster. And uh, I suppose so. it's quite unsettling, really, Uh, there aren't going to be any quick wins or quick answers here. But I do think that, you know, there does need to be some sort of clarity as to what each of these reviews will focus on Mm -hmm. quite quickly, because it's, it's sort of only fair to the people working within the sector that they know what they're they're facing you know in the next few years.
0: Yeah I I don't know how much sort of administratively or or organisationally is is involved with this stuff but it, it does feel like this real solid focus on quite existential questions that at the same time involve quite a lot of work comes at a time when, like, we're, we're sort of in, a, in an economic recession. It's, it's very difficult to, it's slightly different with the BBC, but it's very difficult to run a commercial broadcaster at the moment. So I don't know if there is a slight feeling of, like, oh, God, not another one. <laughs> more more work for me while I try and do my best to increase ad revenues and, and like, move forwards.
1: I did find Mark Thompson's vision for Channel 4 quite interesting. Mm. Um effectively saying that Channel 4 needs to um, internationalize to an extent to survive. So he talks about there being a massive opportunity for the Channel 4 brand to be sort of exported around the world in some form or the other. Um, I quite like the idea of Channel 4 as a sort of big global international brand, but I don't, to be honest, think that there is necessarily a crying need out there in the US, in the, you know, over in Asia, in, in Australia, for Channel 4 to um, sort of make an impact, obviously, it's, it's possible that that could happen, but I don't quite see it, right. Mm. And um, in, in the same extent that I, I think that, you know, BBC Three has been a really, I think, broadly a, a very sort of positive brand for for the BBC, and has done really good work. Um, and it's sort of playing sort of, you know, somewhere in the same space that an internationalized channel four would play in, but it is made no inroads, right? There's, Mm. but you could speak to people in in other countries about what BBC three is and they wouldn't have a clue. Um, and I would imagine that would be the same with channel four. And I just don't quite see how channel four would be exported considering that the entire business model is about allowing Uh, indie suppliers to retain rights to their program so I don't quite understand what he expects that to be if there was a way that Channel 4 were able to somehow I don't know launch an in-house division or something and they Mm. were able to have some sort of intellectual property or some something that they can take and export you know physically that they can export to to other territories then you might have a really interesting way of making cash but i don't quite see it but I, you know it's, it's uh intriguing all the same
0: i i found i think i was i felt similarly i found the concept interesting but it was hard for me to really understand mark what mark thompson was getting at like h- harness the power of channel 4 globally ultimately that they could produce better more channel 4 style shows quote unquotes but they wouldn't really make any money out of them because they don't own the rights to those shows. And that's you know, that's gonna handicap Channel 4 forever. I don't know if he was subtly indicating that Channel 4 should have more control over those rights. And that, uh, uh, actually we have a Channel 4 strategy, future strategy update coming up in two weeks time, I believe so. That is certainly something to keep an eye on. Um, but we were talking earlier, Jesse, about this 10 strong panel that the government has has forged to look into the future of P.S.B. So, so some of the people on this on this panel just quickly include Sir Robbie Gibb, uh, who used to uh, direct comms for, for Theresa May, and is a. Uh, used to work for the BBC but has in more recent years Almost outed himself as as, as a bit of a BBC sceptic John Hardy is on this list um, The former chief executive and editor-in-chief at ITN A couple of big super indie figures Jane Turton, uh, who's the chief executive of all three media And Sophie Turner-Lang, who used to run Endemol Shine Group uh, Until it's J takeover And the the only kind of figure from the, the Fangs Although we, we don't really use Fang anymore, do we? We stopped using no, that got a little, <laughs> a little ago, while that. ago, yeah um, but Nick, Nicola Mendelssohn, uh, who's the vice president for EMEA at Facebook, is the, the kind of Silicon Valley figure, uh, if, if, if you'd like. Jesse, what did you think of the panel?
1: Well, I suppose you look at every individual person on that panel and you think they've got great credentials. Each person individually is definitely qualified to be there. Um, and that is, I think, in itself, that's you know, that's a good thing that smart people will be debating the, the future of, of where the sector's going to go. I mean, my big problem with this, and I, think, and I don't think I'm gonna be the only person who's said this, and we, Max, you and I have heard from indie sources this week, kind of quite unhappy with the makeup. And um, it's understandable to see why, because this panel is uh, it's effectively 10 people, nine of whom are white, um, I did some back of the uh, of a fag packet, um, You've, you've turned some numbers on. for
0: us, haven't I did, you? I did. I did.
1: I, and these, these may well be inaccurate, I wouldn't take them as gospel. But from what I could tell, there was no one under the age of about sort of early 40s, most in their sort of mid to late 50s. There is uh, one uh, British-Asian, um, Samir Shah, uh, who runs a production company, and has been part of the independent sector for a long time and um there are, and there is, like you say, there is one person effectively representing Silicon Valley in the shape of Nicola Mendelssohn, but I look at that, and I think Max, all we 've been reporting on this year is or, or certainly certainly one of the big broad uh, and and kind of consistent messages we've had from the industry. David Onshoga said it Steve, Steve McQueen said it in the piece that I did with him recently that this is all about decision makers right and this is about who's in the room and i look at that panel and i don't see diversity i see um you know you had a an an indie source say to you if this panel had been dreamt up in 2000 rather than 2020 you'd believe it and i Mm. think that's absolutely that's a really good Mm. way of categorizing it. it it feels like there just aren't enough people here who feel kind of active in in what we report on and Mm. um, i really hope that doesn't impact what's going on but it does feel like a really big missed opportunity to get one some younger people who have different views on how media work and two more diverse voices there's you know there's not one black face in there i also think the fact that there are I'll, i'll just go through some of these other little uh, things that I crunched, which suggests that it's a bit homogenous, right? So, so yeah, there's no one, i technically under about 42. Three of them, I'd say, have sort of three or four of them have sort of direct links to the indie sector. Um, mm. But I'd, I would still say it feels like the indie sector is slightly sort of underrepresented mm. here. You'd want um, more,
0: I think. You'd want I, more. I, I,
1: I think so. I think so. Perhaps you wanted someone who, you know, represents, uh, you know, the, the regions or uh, someone who's had more experience in slightly different things. Um, it looked I couldn't see anyone uh, on that panel who looked like they'd been to a comprehensive school. Um, it looked like everyone was sort of from private or independent uh, grammar school backgrounds. It's going to be quite difficult for these folk to have um, divergent opinions, I think.
0: Yeah, there. I, I would. Yeah, uh, I, I think there was a, a kind of lack of, of uh, dynamism. Maybe we're being. I, I don't know if we're being slightly unfair, but the the headline thought about how this panel give or take could have been assembled in 2000, I think is a little bit damning. Like the, the, I think the youth thing is a definite point. You're, you're totally right on, on, uh, I don't think the diverse makeup of this panel is good enough, especially considering the reckoning that the industry has been through over the past sort of half a year. But I think you just, you just need some younger figures who are like, this is about the future of public service broadcasting and the people in the kind of 16 to 34 age bracket the, the the coveted age bracket that everybody talks about and everybody is desperate to appeal to need to be represented and i'm sure there are plenty of great figures within that age bracket who have a great understanding of where psb needs to go in order to survive because clearly at the same time like existential questions are floating around and now on to something completely different i won't bother trying to forge a link here but earlier this week, I spoke with Jenny Ash, the director of Channel 5's upcoming documentary, Nuremberg, The Nazis on Trial. So this week, I am delighted to welcome Jenny Ash to the podcast. Jenny is an Emmy-nominated director and has more recently directed Channel 4's Angry White, and American and 100 Vaginas. She's here today to discuss Nuremberg, The Nazis on Trial, her new Channel 5 documentary, which is produced by Middlechild Productions. Jenny, great to have you on.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: First of all, I wanted to start uh, with asking you what, what drew you to this particular story? When
2: Andrew from Middle Child first approached me, I, I kind of immediately felt it'd be a really fascinating subject for a film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's one of those pivotal events in history that I was aware of, but I didn't really know that much about. And, you know, I just thought it was a story that has so much resonance now. And I really wanted to make something that would speak to a new and younger audience and mm. get them engage with what happened. And, you know, the trial went on for a whole year and was filmed. I had no idea that, like, someone had filmed Nuremberg trials was the American army and they did it like as a record, not to make a film. Mm. So, you know, making something really dramatic out of that um, felt like a really exciting challenge. Um, mm. Mm. And it's incredible footage. I mean, I just looked, you know, um, Andrew sent me some of the archive and I straight away knew that I wanted to do it. And I also had a really, um, a more personal connection because my dad and aunt both escaped from Nazi Germany Mm. just after Kristallnacht in Mm. 1938. And I actually um, spent a lot of time talking to my aunt when, when I was making the film. And she and her boyfriend went over to Germany just after the war as teenagers to translate for the Americans. And um, it was really amazing talking to her. She just gave me loads of little details that I probably wouldn't have found skimming history books. Um, Like, I don't know, the the fact that Nuremberg stank throughout that hot summer of 1945. because thousands of corpses were rotting under the rubble. And, you know, it's just really great little visceral details like that. Um, And yes, sadly, she passed away this summer. Um, So I've dedicated the film to her, which is nice.
0: That's lovely. And and did any, was there any specific work that kind of inspired you?
2: Well, I wanted to treat the film like a courtroom drama and make it as dramatic Mm -hmm. as I could. So I guess like recent crime docs like the O.J. Simpson trial or Making of a Murderer definitely fed into that. Um, But in style terms, I really love Asifa Kapadia's work, Mm -hmm. mainly in Senna in particular. And in Persuading Channel Five that we didn't need to see anyone in Vision, Um, those films were really good references.
0: Mm, mm Yeah, it struck me. Uh, I, I was thinking about while I was watching it, I was thinking about Asif, Asif Kapadia's documentaries. Uh, yeah. and, and it struck me that, that it really stands out that there's there's not really a narrator and you, you don't really see the interviewees. Was that a kind of very deliberate choice that you made quite early on to sort of make it stand out?
2: Yeah, I just thought that, um, you know, quite often when you watch history docs um, with talking heads and archive, you'll you'll st- kind of slightly distance from the archive you see it as oh that is you know that happened in in the past and that mm. grainy footage whereas I, I wanted it to feel as immersive and immediate as possible so mm. I, I and I kind of felt that um, you know I wanted to be in the court as a case played out and with the young war crimes investigator as he discovers a concentration camp and I think that really helps you kind of appreciate the magnitude of it all.
0: What, what do, you, do you think there will be a lot of people watching who won't necessarily, I, I think you've kind of touched on this already, but do you, do you think there'll be a lot of people watching who won't necessarily know the outcome and therefore it will kind of act as, as, as much of a drama as it will a documentary?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think most people will expect that they were all convicted and they all received mm. a penalty, um, which wasn't the case. Um, and I was really surprised. I thought, I, I knew that and um, that was really interesting and you know, in fact, the trial itself was its, was its own like fragile ground. Um, it was like the first time there was a multinational prosecution and, you know, I'm not sure like you you know, people would know that people like Goering actually gave evidence in his defence and that all the defendants felt like they had a case that might get them off a the hook. And, you know, there are times in a trial where it seemed, you know, definitely with Goering where it seemed to be going his way, you know, um, when he rang rings around that um, prosecutor.
0: Yeah, it definitely struck me that, that there will be a lot of people watching who, who are kind of <laughs> like on the edge of their seats, so to speak, as, as, as yeah. opposed to uh, other documentaries where you would be very aware what happens and you're more sort of digging deeper. Um,
2: exactly yeah
0: so yeah Um, I thought that was interesting and that again builds into the new style of documentary
2: yeah and what was really great about not having um, you know being liberated from talking heads is um, I could weave all the um, contemporary voices like um, you know human rights lawyers Philippe Sands and Dapo Mm. I could weave those with historical voices which were also really present tense like um, from diaries and newspaper, you know, articles that have been written. Um, so I had, you know, Gustav Gilbert, who who's a court psychologist, who I think gave a really um, interesting psychological insight into the prisoners that I hadn't heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, and those really acerbic female reporters, um, Rebecca West and Janet Flanner. Th- I've just felt that, you know, not being tied to talking heads liberated me and I could you know bring some um different voices
0: what were some of the biggest challenges in terms of sort of piecing this all together
2: oh god right Where do <laughs> too I many to
0: name <laughs>
2: pandemic covid everything being locked up mm. every archive library in the world being locked up um was you know, a big obvious one and also it was just I don't know um it was really hard to work out the flow of the narrative before you piece together. It was very painstaking work piecing together that archive. Mm. Um, And some of it had been um, transferred, some of it hadn't, some of it wasn't filmed. Um, So, you know, I had this brilliant editor, Rick Barker, um, and we, you know, we spent a lot of edit trawling through transcripts in German, you know, he had GCSE German and mm. I'm kind of, my German's pretty rusty too. <laughs> and like, but, you know, finding, you know, we'd, be, we'd have a kind of um, drama scene, which just needed that moment. And we'd kind of search through transcripts and find it. And then um, I had, you know, a brilliant AP who went and hunted for all that audio archive. Um, all over, I mean, you know, and she found it in really unusual places mm. <laughs> online mm. and then she was a real kind of detective and then I had, um, oh, I, I think one of the best archive producers in the business.
0: It's, um, it's obviously quite an interesting time uh, to have a documentary like this on um, and I spotted in, in the press release, I, I spotted a phrase that I liked, in the era of Covid, economic turmoil and racist violence, the mission of this film is to ensure that our darkest past is not forgotten. Could could you elaborate a bit on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, Hitler came from a world which isn't that different from the world we're in now in some ways. I mean, I think a lot Mm -hmm. of you know, a lot of the world is turning towards authoritarianism Mm -hmm. as democracy is being undermined at its heart from Trump. Mm. And even in like, you know, relatively well-off and cosmopolitan societies in Europe, far-right groups and neo-Nazis are still really able to make inroads. You know, I think, I guess I really wanted to bring a new audience to a subject um, Mm. and remind them that it wasn't really that long ago that these atrocities um, were allowed to happen. And, You know, they've happened since all over the world, haven't they? Like Yugoslavia, Rwanda and Mm. um, Myanmar. You know, I think democracy is really fragile and the world can get swept up in a madness and hatred, which becomes normalised and ordinary people can do evil things and it could happen again.
0: Mm, Of course. We are very interested here at Broadcast about the the rise and rise of Channel 5. Could you ever have imagined making this sort of doc for for Channel 5, say, a few years ago?
2: Well, I have to say it's the first time I've ever made anything for Channel um, 5.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And I thought it was a really brave commission. Mm -hmm. A Mm 90-minute film, mainly in black and white, was not really what I expected when someone said Channel 5. Mm, and yeah. um, Denise um, Ratney, our commissioning editor, was really brilliant and really up for taking risks. Mm. Um, you know, especially in supporting like our vision to make the film without talking heads and narration. I think actually more people are doing that now, but I don't. I mean, I think when we were doing it, it was the first time they'd done it on Channel Five. Mm. Um, so it was great having a commissioning editor who wasn't you know, afraid of that. But yeah, I think, like, some really um, just brilliant films on Channel 5 Been for the last few years.
0: Yeah, no, it strikes me that a kind of, as you described, a kind of younger, skewing, dramatic documentary is something that would not normally have 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 sat on that channel what 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 do you hope the the show's kind of longer lasting impact can be
2: i mean as i said you know i've I've, it's just really important to remember how that whole banality of evil thing you know that ordinary people can Mm. do evil things and it can how easily it can happen how fragile democracy is and all that i also hope like it shows that justice can rise above vengeance
0: and and what what do you have planned next is there anything else you're working on at the moment
2: Yeah, I've got a few um, feature docs that I'm developing, and Mm -hmm. um, I've got a factual drama that I'm hopefully doing for, or developing for Channel 4. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm always kind of looking for stories that have an impact on today and aren't just simple retellings of the past, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, you know, documentaries are really incredibly powerful tools that can have um, a really profound and positive effect on... An audience in a way that many other mediums can't. It's been an absolute pleasure, thanks so much for coming on um,
0: and, and for yeah, letting, letting us know a little bit more about this upcoming documentary, thanks so much.
2: Absolute pl- pleasure and thanks for watching it Max.
0: Cheers Jenny, thank you. Bye. Jenny Ash there um, and the, the doc sounds super interesting uh, but Jesse Whittaker is still here with me, Broadcast Insight Editor, as we move seamlessly on to our favourite part of the week,
1: it's what we've been watching. Um, oh yeah, sorry, I was uh, in a world of my own out <laughs> right there for a How second. How could you? I, I was just thinking about what I've been watching, it was, uh, so, <laughs> it was so taken by it. Um, Max, this week I've been um, uh, watching uh, the latest series of Billions, um, which is on Sky Atlantic over here. Uh, it's uh, a US import um, from Showtime, so one of the Viacom CBS or premium channels. Um, for those who don't know it, uh, it's now in series five, season five, uh, and it's basically about this sort of cat and mouse game between these two super high-powered U.S. figures. So one of them played by Damian Lewis, this guy Bobby Axelrod, who's a um, big hedge fund manager. Uh, he's sort of there to kind of represent, you know, Wall Street and this kind of like kind of cowboy attitude and the, 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 the sort of American guy who uh, has huge influence but you don't hear very much about. Um, And he's sort of constantly butting heads with uh, the Attorney General, uh, who's sort of this like really ambitious guy who wants to get into politics and wants to, never wants to lose and takes things far too personally. And and they sort of they're friends at times and they're not they're not friends and um, they've got sort of personal links and there's all sorts of um, uh, fun dynamics that go between them. Um, And it's one of those series that really by now should be really stupid. Um, Mm. So American shows have a you know, a a habit of going on far too long um, and really kind of losing grip on what it was that made their shows good in the first place. And you get some really strange sort of series fours and series fives in America where shows just feel like they're completely dead, but they're being flogged to, you know, another 13 episodes and they'll probably get a recommission because the ratings are just about high enough to keep Mm them going. Um, But it's broadly, whilst some of it's it's getting a bit cartoony uh, in this latest series, it is uh, it's still sort of holding up, and the, it's it really, you know it's really well made. Um, it's got some of the guys who um, broke the story behind the um, two thousand and eight um, um, subprime mortgage crash um, story uh, as as creators uh, and and advisors on the story. So you know it's it's really well informed, and um, you always have a good time with it. The Lewis and Giamatti are like absolutely brilliant. Um, some other some great performances elsewhere, um, and it's it's very fun and lots of it's very silly. Uh, and you know, as you know, Max, I like a show that sort of mixes some sort of like point with being like utterly stupid. And I'd mm-hmm. say this one does that very well. The interesting thing about this series actually is they're sort of about halfway through, and because of the production lockdown, they were obviously forced to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've still got, you know, several episodes to film, as far as I understand it. I think it might that it might be the case now that they're they're a bit closer to getting it all done, but there is this. Um, uh, it, it's been one of the sort of shows over in America that's been used as a case point for how the pandemic um, really impacted drama. What have you been um, watching, Max?
0: Yeah, for for what it's worth, I've watched the first three episodes of The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which I feel like is kind of the. Netflix drama of the week or the month? It
1: feels like it. Yeah, it's the, it feels like the first time chess has ever been yeah um, yeah. Into I, no- the I noted
0: uh, Anne Ann Mensa did a talk. Anne Ann Menser of of Netflix scripted fame did a talk earlier this week. She said she's been driven to buy a chess set by uh, by watching the show. Um, and she oh, there, made there uh, you go, that's fine. yeah. <laughs> so Oops. good for her. She made the also less funny observation um, that this is exactly what Netflix wants to do, which is to take like kind of, I don't know, is chess, chess popular? Popularish pastimes and like make big dramas about them and, and allow people to either get into them for the first time or like, I don't know, rain, rain back the years. But I, I really like chess, but I, I actually, it is really good. I do feel like it's, it's, a, it's almost overly chessy, like the, the second and third episodes are both involving the main character just playing chess tournaments. And like, sometimes they're quite tense and exciting. And sometimes there's a lot of like watching. So, so the, the rough premise being that it's a, a young, young girl um, grows up in an orphanage, gets really good at chess in the orphanage, then is adopted, starts making money via chess tournaments. She's played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who's really, really good. And you spend quite a lot of time watching her in sort of like tense chess games, <laughs> in, invariably winning most of the
1: time. I was going to make some sort of joke about Anne Mensah. And by oh, interest, being, a, uh, yeah, but, being but it, yeah. Desi- but I decided not to, and I just decided to to just tell you in this this format that that's what i
0: was going to do. <laughs> you thought you'd listen um, to my wonderful review of the Queen's Gambit instead. <laughs> you I listening. did, listening. I loved it, Max. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, Jesse, as ever, it's been fantastic having you on the pod, uh, and I'm sure we will speak again soon. Thank you for listening to the broadcast news wrap. I'm senior reporter Max Goldbart. And you've been hearing from Insight editor Jesse Wittock and our special guest, the Emmy-nominated director Jenny Ash. This week's podcast was edited by me, Max Goldbart. You can check out past episodes of the pod on Spotify and iTunes or on the website via www.broadcastnow.co.uk.